Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Trenaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. It's April 2020 as we continue to band together during these uncertain times. Today, Roger talks about the current healthcare crisis and shares his strategies on how to think long-term, two to three years into the future by utilizing patterns and trends. Panics, recessions, and depressions by their very nature force everyone to reassess almost everything. So we're not sure what to believe. Our day-to-day continuity and comfort zones are shattered. Our new experiences are not pleasant, but they're unavoidable. My intent in this podcast is to help regain perspective, to know what to expect next in the business and economic contexts. No matter how difficult today, we must force ourselves to focus on our personal pathways while living through this voyage in uncharted waters. After this treacherous journey, we must have plans to succeed with caring for our families and managing our jobs and finances in a changed social and business environment. So let's get to it. First, there is an effective approach to all the daily news and events that threaten our personal and financial sense of well-being. Focus on your long-term objectives. I'll say it again. Focus on your long-term objectives. Quickly screen out the noise and drama inherent in our continuous news cycle. There's more than enough day-to-day bad news coming from COVID-19 and a growing global quarantine, so try to also quarantine yourself from the information overload. I know it's hard, but for my part, I try to discipline myself getting news updates quickly and only a few times a day. It's far more important to set aside quiet periods to make personal plans for the longer term, and I'm talking about the next two or three years. Here's what I count on with reference to the healthcare crisis. Number one, with the best doctors, researchers, biotech, pharmaceutical, and healthcare system in the world, COVID-19 will be under control in a matter of months. Number two, the U.S., European, and Asian economies and financial systems have been overextended, relying on unsustainable debt growth since the 2008-2009 Great Recession, and actually well before then. New money creation and bailouts just went on steroids, and this will have new consequences that we'll cover today. Number three, work processes will change due to our forced remote work and buying environments. Those businesses not bankrupted will create and deliver their products and services much more efficiently, speeding up adoption of AI and robotics. Number four, governments will become more intrusive in our day-to-day activities while they prepare us for much higher taxes. I don't really like to bring this up, but it's unavoidable in my view. Overall, the next two or three years will represent an economic recovery that will, in my view, represent a new normal in our jobs, credit availability, bankruptcies, and job losses. It will also stimulate local manufacturing, change the gig economy for better and for worse, and importantly, the influence of the U.S. and global money creation to liquefy or protect banks, states, and cities. Although no one knows how all the revised puzzle parts will fit together, we are getting a better and better preview. On my part, I'd rather try to figure out how these emerging parts fit together than to get caught up in the 24-hour news cycle that largely ignores the longer-term economic trends. These trends will move us to and into and through the upcoming early recovery stages. 
You may ask, what trends? Let's go back to the beginning of this series of podcasts about six months ago. Trend number one. Over the past 20 or 30 years, a small number of market participants control our financial markets, including stock prices, interest rates, currency values, and credit availability. Remember, on a daily basis, five to seven trillion dollars moves through our U.S. financial system. The largest part of this daily movement is accounted for by U.S. government securities, like treasury bills, treasury notes, and treasury bonds. A distant second is the U.S. stock markets, New York Stock Exchange, and over-the-counter markets. Another important financial market is currency trading. Mixed into the above are municipal bonds, which are not so active in their trading, and corporate bonds. A very small number of entities account for 80 to 90 percent of the five to seven trillion dollars of movement or transactions each day. Less than 200 participants. We have the 24 primary dealers, which are the major global banks like JP Morgan, Citibank, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, and the like, plus the 20 or so really large sovereign wealth funds, plus the 100 or so largest hedge funds, plus the largest pension funds, insurance companies, and mutual funds. All of these participants, minute to minute, day to day, change their investments, seeking the highest financial returns. Many of them utilize the advisory services of a handful of global advisory firms, such as BlackRock. Also recall that a handful of these participants bought tens of thousands of homes facing or in foreclosure after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. These homes were then placed into financial pools in which participating entities could sell their rental income streams from these newly purchased homes to other large investors, such as the large insurance companies and hedge funds. When we began our podcast series, we included the inherent resources that the above participants have that we as individuals don't have. And these include lightning fast fiber optic networks connected globally for moving money, up to the minute research, complex models, and trade executions based on algorithms. They have one more resource not available to us mere mortals. They have global data overlays of real-time feeds, including streaming video from their satellite channels. For example, they see not only satellite photos of Beijing's reduced air pollution, but can watch truck traffic leaving factories to estimate economic activity. They can see in real time empty and full oil tankers transiting the Suez Canal. And oil demand and oil shipments can be evaluated. Just as easily, they can see numbers of cars parked in individual shopping centers, and that data is used to estimate retail sales. The largest global money managers don't have to wait for business, economic, or trade news. Their models give estimates 24 by 7. Why should I care? You should care because you can't outfox the marketplace dominated by these large global participants. You can really only build your successes by taking a long-term approach to financial commitments, minimizing your vulnerability to volatility, and those many things you just can't control. All of the above create fast and sometimes deadly moves in our financial markets. Crude oil dropped in half in a matter of days. The U.S. stock market dropped a record amount in a record time. The first-time filings for unemployment unfortunately hit a record and then hit a new record, and now 10 million workers have newly filed for unemployment, with many more unfortunately in the pipeline each week. Let's spend a minute on the crude oil thread. 
Oil shale production and fracking effectively made the U.S. energy market self-sufficient, but now the shale oil producers, like the now-bankrupt Whiting Petroleum, are facing bankruptcy. Oil shale producers need a crude oil price close to $50 a barrel just to break even. At the other extreme, Saudi Arabia can break even with a price well under $10 a barrel. The drop in oil prices to even below $30 a barrel will force the U.S. shale producers to stop production. So the next ripple is the banks that lent about $1 trillion to the oil shale producers. Over 50 medium-sized banks are at risk, and in addition, all the service companies that support the shale oil industry, drilling contractors, transporters, and so forth, are now at risk along with their employees and their banks. This example is discussed to illustrate how connected we all are, how we connect with the global financial system, and how utterly complex economic analysis can become. Just imagine figuring out today's issues with the many hundreds of global industries. This is why we focus on the major trends and major participants, as there are actually not that many of either. And not to belabor the point, but the largest money managers mentioned had all this information well before the news items appeared. Today, April 3rd, as this podcast is recorded, the same major participants are gathering data on a future Russia-Saudi Arabia meeting to cut oil production to raise crude oil prices. To add to the complexity, the global quarantines are dropping oil, read that as gasoline, jet fuel, ocean transport fuel, and so forth, faster than both Russia and Saudi Arabia can cut production, should they decide to cut production. In a past normal day, the world consumed about 100 million barrels a day of crude oil. The U.S., about 20 million of that. The European community, about 15, and China, about 14. So about 50% of world crude oil production was consumed by these top three areas. Now, Russia and Saudi Arabia each produce about 12 million barrels a day for a total of 24 million. So at the extreme... Our present-day oil demand could drop from 100 million to 60 million or 70 million. And even if Russia and Saudi Arabia totally closed their oil fields, which is highly unlikely, that would stop production by 24 million, which is not nearly as much as the demand may be dropping. We are not capable of analyzing the thousands of world markets and the millions of future possibilities. The point is that the largest money movers do have these analytical capabilities. They may be wrong, but they are most well-informed and they dramatically move markets. So how can we compete with them? We can't. What we can do is get out of their way and invest our time, money, and job preparation consistently with key trends. You may ask, okay, so what can I expect over the next two or three years? I'm no oracle, but I try to make sense of the trends. Here's my best attempt for preparing for next year and 2022. Number one, job preparation. Consider that the gig economy overall may be segmented into low-paying jobs and high-career potential jobs. The low-paying jobs will continue to grow, but consider that each person working independently full-time has the burden of paying their own health care expenses and funding their own retirement and savings plans. It's possible. Many in this lower-paying area will be working for less than the minimum wage after these considerations. The high-career potential jobs require significant ongoing investments in professional development and a daily focus on how technology impacts each person's profession. 
For example, gig workers in digital marketing, specialized software development, and compliance auditing could pay for their own health care and retirement savings while still maintaining respectable lifestyles. As mentioned, artificial intelligence, or AI, will become a significant operations cost saver for banks and other credit providers. AI coupled with robotics will replace large numbers of warehouse workers, customer service representatives, and ultimately even truck drivers. That may be more like five years ahead. No matter your profession, you must try to stay up to date on AI's emerging impact on it. Focus groups of many hiring managers point up the importance of completing multi-course certificate programs. One of the largest job placement organizations in the U.S., recommends that a newly earned professional certificate be included in recent experience, not lumped together with degree programs completed years ago. Number two, bankruptcies. Last evening, I was invited to participate in a regional webcast conducted with high net income clients of a well-known money center bank. The new CARES program, C-A-R-E-S, for getting federal funds to small businesses was briefly discussed. There's little doubt this program will save a number of small businesses, but there's also little doubt that a number of small businesses are too weak to survive, whether the reasons are related to the so-called normal risk or digital businesses that are competing, such as Amazon, Chewy.com, many others, replacing traditional brick and mortar or supply chain issues, expected continuation of high personal and business bankruptcies throughout the year in any event. Number three, company hiring. The expectation is the vast majority of larger private and public sector organizations will survive and move back into the workplace during the second half of 2020. But of necessity, there will be a new normal defined by higher productivity requirements, which in some cases will mean fewer numbers of employees. Remote work by itself focuses on task accomplishment, albeit at the expense of socialization, at least traditional socialization. Today, virtual teams meet around deliverables, and new processes are quickly figured out. It's predictable that managers and organizations will see new opportunities for expense savings and elimination of past traditional processes. As an additional impetus, most organizations will have lost money and revenues during the quarantine period, further forcing organizations to attempt fulfilling their missions with lower expenses and, again, lower numbers of employees, lower employee benefits, and smaller workspaces. For many companies, personnel costs, including benefits, plus occupancy expenses, represents the majority of total operating expenses. These two areas are likely under scrutiny as we continue with the quarantine period. So the new normal will likely be less full-time staff and less real estate space. Number four, credit. Banks will be dealing with a rising number of defaults, bankruptcies, and overall higher bad debt expense. The shale oil industry has been mentioned, but hotels and restaurants are a much larger segment, employing almost 10% of all Americans with hundreds of thousands of locations that will be underutilized until we, across the U.S., become comfortable traveling and going out again as we did in the past. This normalization cannot be expected to occur this year and maybe not totally through 2021, given the best of health outcomes. Getting these loans into the hands of America's 30 million small businesses is absolutely critical, as they employ about half of the U.S. private sector. 
I'll say again, small businesses, less than 500 employees each, employ about half of the U.S. private sector employees. And that's according to the SBA website. Number five, real estate. The major fallout from the above trends may be commercial real estate. Never say never, but the recovery from the 2020 panic and financial crisis may exclude commercial real estate for a good many years. Arguably, before COVID-19, these trends were already in place, just not so recognizable. For example, the U.S. has had three to four times the retail space per capita versus most other industrial nations, and ironically, in recent years, has birthed the large digital competitors not needing much real estate. We covered this in a prior episode of our podcasts. Residential real estate will be a victim of today's financial crisis with expected job losses, foreclosures, and higher standards for future mortgage qualification. This shoe has not dropped yet as data comes in monthly with reporting for March dead ahead. April and May are getting dialed in and will likely be as shocking as the unemployment weekly reporting. However, residential should recover much faster than commercial. Number six, governments. All the new trillions of dollars moving to support our economy and businesses has a future price to all of us. A quarantined economy will force cities, states, and the federal government to borrow many more trillions of dollars. And importantly, operating budget deficits are almost guaranteed. This is a hot topic, but my view is that all governments will find new ways to tax and increase taxes rather than institute large layoffs to balance their budgets. Number seven, the Federal Reserve. As previously mentioned, the Federal Reserve can be counted on to protect bank solvency. With the upcoming credit issues just summarized, it is likely that the Federal Reserve will continue to create many more trillions of dollars. They will be the primary buyers of all layers and levels of new government debt and will extend into buying debt of large corporations. Number eight, the stock market. This is a particularly difficult area for analysis and commentary as the stock market reflects future economic and business conditions not today's issues. The stock market will bottom and begin recovery before the actual economy starts its recovery. Overall, based upon the new trillions of dollars pumped into the economy by Congress and the trillions created by the Federal Reserve, the U.S. stock market will bottom and begin a journey to new high levels. Personally, I expect the stock market to be the major beneficiary in the recovery cycle with new highs reached in two or three years. I'm not a stock market timer, full disclosure, but the overall market may remain low and incur another severe sell-off as both unemployment and home price news become steady drumbeats. My own guesstimate is that May-June will provide needed new insights on the upcoming recovery, and with luck, that period could serve as the low point for high-quality large companies that handle little or no debt dependence. 
We are attempting to cover the impossible as our Business Insights podcast covers the world and considers today's most serious crises. We are transparent and rely on data, history, and observation of key marketplace participants. Speaking of participants, let me know if you'd like to participate in a free online course that promises to give you more depth in understanding key determinants of our financial future. My ideal is to give you enough knowledge that you can form your own educated viewpoints rather than be swayed continuously by those creating drama in the news cycle. Email me at rtornaden, that's R-T-O-R-N-E-D-E-N, at UCLA Extension, one word, dot edu. And I'm sure we'll have much more to share in two weeks. Be sure to email us at rtornaden at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornaden, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu.